turn with me now. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 8. If you're using a pew Bible, Acts chapter 8, you will find this on page 1482, if you're using a pew Bible, 1482. Acts chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 9 through 24, so it continues on to the next page as well. It's on your large print sheets as well, of course. Acts chapter 8. Reading verses 9 through 24. Starting on page 1482. Continuing on to 1483. Hear now the word of God from Acts 8, 9 through 24. But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Well, beloved people of God, today we conclude our study of the second commandment. We've been looking at this in both the positive and the negative direction. We've talked about how the second commandment with regard to not making graven images, first of all tells us that we are to worship God according to his standards. We are to worship God according to his commandments. 
So we talked about worship. You remember the three, the three aspects of it, SDP. Worship is special, it's dialogical, it's prescribed, it's special, it's different from the rest of life. What we are doing right now in this place is different from what we do in other aspects of our lives. This is special. We're coming into God's special, holy presence and offering up these acts of worship. And so it's also dialogical. It's back and forth. God speaks to us through the reading of the word, the preaching of the word. We respond to him through the singing of praise and the praying of prayer. It's this back and forth. It's a dialogue between God and ourselves. But it's also prescribed. That is to say, just like a physician's prescription that's written out, of course, for a physician in illegible handwriting, but in Scripture, it's not illegible. We can all read it. We can all figure out how we are to worship the true and the living God. He has set it forth for us. It's not according to the imaginations of men or the suggestions of Satan. It's according to divine command. And so it is prescribed, special, dialogical, and prescribed. We also looked at the fact also that we are to, positively, we are to support true worship. And you remember we used four uh, initials there, MATS, M-A-T-S, membership, attendance, tithing, and the supremacy of God's glory. We are to join the church. And uh, we also are to, uh, it doesn't mean you have to join this church, of course, but you should become part of the visible church somewhere. And you're to attend. You're to attend. You're to show up, obviously. And we looked at some of the excuses that people give, such as Mother's Day or Father's Day or Juneteenth or Super Bowl Sunday. That doesn't cut it with God, does it? So membership, attendance, tithing, tangible support, giving of our tithe, but also the supremacy of God's glory, saying we should, we should offer the worship that is most for the glory of God, that is most in accord with Scripture. And so those were the positive things we looked at. And uh, we also... Uh, considered why we sing psalms exclusively as part of that positive dimension. But then we also started to consider last week the negative side. That is to say, we are not to worship God by means of graven images. We're not even to make a graven image. We're not to make a picture of Jesus, for example, or any person of the Godhead or God as a whole. We're not to make any picture a painting, statue, or even in our minds. Even in our minds. We're not to worship it, or by means of it, we're not to make any such image. And today now we consider another dimension of this, and that is that the law condemns all unauthorized religious service. The law condemns, it condemns all unauthorized, uncommanded religious service. 
And you see the title of the sermon today, Superstitious Worship, It's Idolatry and Danger. Now the word superstition is an interesting word, is it not? We usually associate it with old wives' tales, perhaps ghosts or other such things, superstitions. However, we are using it today to refer to anything religious that is not authorized by God. Anything religious that is not authorized by God. It is superstitious worship is man-made or religion is man-made religion, believing that such is pleasing to God or doing something in a way of protecting from bad events. In Greek, the word desidaimonia is the term. Desidaimonia. You hear in there demon? You hear that word demon in there? Desidaimonia. It carries the notion of evil demons or spirits. Now superstitions, in general terms, superstitions are silly and potentially dangerous. For example, superstitions can be like, don't walk under a ladder, right? Or the number 13, or throwing salt over your shoulder, or not stepping on cracks, lest you break your mother's back, right? Remember that? Now those are all silly, right? Those are all silly. But you see, it is no less silly Indeed, it is dangerous to try to worship God in ways that you have dreamed up. It's no less silly than these common superstitions, but more than that, it is downright dangerous. So let's first of all then look at superstitious worship today. Superstitious worship. And here I would just mention various false elements or parts or practices of worship. For example... Liturgical dancing. Do you know there are churches that actually believe in that? Do you know there are theologians? I had a professor like that who said, oh, you can preach a sermon, you can sing a sermon, you can dance a sermon. Wrong. He's dead wrong. But liturgical dancing. Liturgical drama. Skits in place of or in addition to the preaching of the word. Clown acts. I'm not... I'm not joking. I'm not clowning around by saying that. Clown acts. Some churches have had people dress up as clowns as part of worship. Movies and slideshows. Videos as part of worship. Even applause. In general, we could say that What is condemned here is sensualism, sensualism, that is to say, the appeal to the senses, especially what we see and what we hear, but especially what we see, especially what we see. It's the appeal to the senses, to the material, rather than to the spiritual. And these are various false elements and practices of worship. Basically, entertainment. Let me entertain you. That's the way a lot of churches worship today. But not only are there various false elements and practices of worship, there are also false views of worship. For example, false views of the sacraments. And let me, first of all, talk about the Lord's Supper. You may have heard of the Roman Catholic Mass. You may have heard of that. 
What is the Roman Catholic Mass, the view of the Lord's, uh, its view of the Lord's Supper? It is the idea that Christ suffers again. Every time the Mass is said, he is suffering again what he suffered on the cross. But that is blasphemy, is it not? Christ suffered once for all. He said, it is finished. It is finished. It's on that basis of his once for all sacrifice and suffering that we have salvation. But the Roman Catholic Mass would say something different. It's also the idea that in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine actually turn into the actual literal body and blood of Christ. We think of our Lutheran friends, whom many of whom I know and respect, but they also have a false view of, of communion. It's called consubstantiation, the idea that the body and blood or that the, the, the body and blood of Christ are under, with, and surrounding the bread and the wine. And then there's also what is called a mere memorial view. In other words, it's simply what we do in terms of remembrance. Now, we do remember the Lord in the Lord's Supper, to be sure, but it's not a mere memorial. It's not merely what we do, it's what what God does in coming down to us and, as it were, lifting us up as Calvin said, lifting us up into heaven. And so sometimes when you have the Lord's Supper, you'll hear musical instrumentation or some other distraction during the Lord's Supper. There's also, there are also false views of baptism. And here I would note baptismal regeneration, the idea that simply by baptizing someone in the name of the Trinity, that person automatically is regenerated. Again, false view or a view that is not covenantal, that does not understand that not only are those who profess faith, but also their children are legitimately to be baptized. So, false views of the sacraments, but also thinking of worship as being man-centered and entertainment-oriented. We've already seen this phenomenon with respect to many things, this is true with regard to people who try to justify a ceremony or ritual because of personal fulfillment or satisfaction. Oh, it made me feel so good. So, God is not impressed. We worship according to God's commands, solely and strictly. And so false views of the sacraments and thinking of worship as being man-centered and entertainment-oriented. But also, not only do we have various false elements and practices and false views of worship, but also using man-made devices in worship in order to create an atmosphere, such as images. And this is what we find here in Exodus chapter 32. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that in Exodus 32, the golden calf that was made was in order to worship the Lord. It was in order to worship the Lord. But as we saw from Deuteronomy 4, verse 15, God said, you did not see any vision. You did not see any form of me, did you? When I, uh, when I came down, when the law was given, you didn't see any form of me because I'm invisible and I'm not to be portrayed in this way. And yet how many times do people try to use images 
perhaps to create either to, by which to worship or to create an atmosphere, if you will. Or images, false images, thinking of God as if he were an old man in the heavens or other unbiblical phrases. Well, there are other man-made devices as well, candles and incense, candles and incense to create an atmosphere. We see this particularly with candlelight services around Christmas time. Or places of worship when they are designed to stimulate artificially a spirit of worship. Let me tell you something. We are meeting, as you can see, we're meeting in a very rough room right now. It's not the the most convenient, is it? We're hoping, Lord willing, very soon to be able to fix up that middle room and so to make it more attractive and more more, um, pleasing, more pleasant, particularly to visitors. But listen to me carefully here. There will be no more glory of God when we get that middle room fixed up than the glory of God that is here right now. That's the glory you see of it. That it's not a building. It's not the material. It's the spiritual. And I see it on your faces. I see it as I see you sitting under the preaching of the word and listening. I see the glory of God in terms of the worship that is being offered here. That's where the glory is. But there are folks who will come up with places of worship in order to try to stimulate in an artificial way a spirit of worship. We could also think of religious holy days and holidays. The first day of the week is the only holy day for the Christian. Of course, there are days of fasting and days of thanksgiving when God providentially appoints them through the church or through the civil magistrate. But to institute other religious holy days adds to God's worship. It assumes a wrong view of church authority. It essentially constitutes false sacraments and inevitably leads to paganism, abuses, and apostasy. What about holy water, medallions, rosaries, statues, and so forth? My friends, despite protestations to the contrary, they are superstitious and they are used in idolatrous ways. They are aids to devotion. Again, something which God has not commanded and something which tends to downplay and replace those things which God has instituted. What about crosses? Well, a cross, interestingly, is a pagan symbol, is it not? Nowhere is it pictured in scripture as something to be adored as some sort of devotional way or looked on with great favor. And so there are all kinds of things in terms of superstitious worship. False elements and practices, false views, and using man-made devices in worship in order to create an atmosphere. But remember, I said here, it wasn't just in the theme of the sermon, it wasn't just the condemnation of all unauthorized religious worship, but all unauthorized religious service, which is a bit broader. And here we come to two S's, simony 
and sacrilege. Simony and sacrilege. Now, simony refers to Acts chapter 8. Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, who tried to gain an advantage by means of money. And so this word, simony, S-I-M-O-N-Y, has come down to us through history. In the Middle Ages, there was a lot of simony going on in the Roman Catholic Church, where literally seats of bishops, positions of bishops, could be bought and sold. That's an example of simony, or being involved or being in the ministry for the sake of money. Several years ago, I was driving around, and you know where we started the ministry, at the old church building. I was at that intersection. You remember it was known for drug dealing, right? And so I, I stopped the car, I got out, there were about six or seven fellows uh, hovering around that intersection, so I went up, of course, to invite them to church, right? One of them pushed back against me, against that invitation, and accused me of being engaged in this ministry because of the money, right? Now, I, you know how I answered him? I offered to send him a copy of our church's financial statement <clears throat> to demonstrate, of course, that it's not because of the money. That's not the point, is it? And I think you all know that. But there are people, there are people who are in the ministry because of the money, or they're not. That's an example of simony in terms of money. Ultimately, any motivation regarding religious things that is not related to the glory of God. But also sacrilege, treating with disrespect that which is holy. Treating with disrespect that which is holy. For example, supporting false worship and religion, which is to disrespect true worship and true religion. We are to separate from unbelief, heresy, and blasphemy. You know, there are all kinds of excuses that people offer for associating with those who dishonor Christ, even in various churches. The minister has been so nice to me. He even mentions Christ. The church is bigger and has more young people and youth programs. My family has been part of this church for 200 years. But what is the message that that church now is giving? It may be good, or it may not be good. And if it isn't good, if it isn't good, then you must separate from that, or else you are treating with disrespect that which is holy. Now thirdly, I want to mention the danger of violating this commandment. The danger of violating this commandment. First of all, sensualism. I've already mentioned that. But I want to come back to that because this is so important, my friends. This is so important. This is where you get caught up in that which is material and emotional. And the danger is, is that you think that the high 
that you experience is a truly spiritual, with a capital S, a truly Holy Spirit moment. You can therefore be fooled into thinking that you are worshiping God when you're really not. You can even be fooled as to whether you are truly converted or not. This is the danger of sensualism. This is the danger that we are seeing in churches today. This is the danger that we see in Roman Catholicism. This is the danger of these things. Being caught up in the sensual, the material, the external, rather than focusing on the internal and the spiritual. Secondly, the danger of violating this commandment is seen by offering God, by offending God's people, by imposing unbiblical worship upon them. Worship, my friends, is an imposition. The leaders impose upon the flock what is to be done in worship. I'm the one that comes up with the bulletin every week. I'm the one that gives the order of service. Am I being faithful to scripture as I do? If I'm not, then I am imposing something upon you which is not right. That's, you see, worship is an imposition. And imposing something not commanded is a violation of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. How many times have we perhaps been in a church service and we have had to refrain from participating in certain practices because we know that they are not commanded by Christ? And so we are, our consciences are grieved and we are offended. So that's another danger of violating this commandment. But thirdly, there's another, there's a third danger, and that is offending God who is jealous for his own glory. My friends, God is sovereign. He says, I, the Lord, in Exodus, uh, in Exodus uh, chapter 20, in Exodus chapter 20, he says, not only shall you not make yourselves a carved image, not bow down to them nor serve them, he says, verse 5, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. He is sovereign. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. But he's also your God. Our God, he owns us. He is sovereign and he is our owner. He has zeal for his own worship. He says here, am a jealous God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He is zealous for his own glory and his own worship. And furthermore, he threatens punishment by visiting the iniquity. Verse 5 again of Exodus 20, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. He threatens punishment by visiting the iniquity of those who sin in violating this commandment. Notice that there is a generational aspect here because often sons will follow in the father's path even to the third and fourth generation. I'll praise God 
His grace can break in and break that pattern. But nevertheless, there is a generational pattern that is set. God responds in kind then to those whom he here says, listen carefully, he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. This is serious business. Offending God who is jealous for his own glory. I have two points of application today, and the first is this. Rejoice in the blessing of God to you and to your descendants who keep this commandment. Because God goes on to say in this commandment, the promise is to a thousand generations and more to those who love me and keep my commandments. Those who keep this commandment carefully are more likely to keep the others as well. And so rejoice in the blessing of God to you and your descendants who keep this commandment. But secondly, remember that you cannot fulfill the demands of the second commandment. Can't do it. I can't do it. And you should be overwhelmed by your inability to keep it. My friends, you need a mediator. You need a go-between. You need a savior. And you must therefore flee to Jesus Christ. For indeed, he is the one who worshiped perfectly on behalf of all those who trust in him. So I call you today to the Lord Jesus, the one who offered perfect worship as the God-man, as as God come in the flesh, the one who perfectly kept all the commandments, including this very important commandment of not worshiping God in any way but how he has ordained. I said in an earlier message, the second commandment is often seen as the forgotten commandment. May it be forgotten no longer. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we thank Thee for Thy Holy Spirit who has been with us and who even now is working graciously in applying this message to our hearts. Give us the grace, O Lord, not only to recognize our sinfulness, but also to recognize our Savior, as the only one who could worship perfectly on our behalf. So we thank thee, our Father, for Jesus, who not only paid the price for all of our sins, but also fulfilled all righteousness for us. And so we come in Jesus' name, offering up this our prayer, and indeed all of our worship through him, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.